the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-1172, 888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, and I do mean special. You've heard maybe once a year over the years, I have devoted an entire show to talking with an author who matters to me, whether it's Vince Flynn or Stephen Pressfield, Brad Thor, Alex Berenson, of course, Daniel Silva's been here a couple of times. Well, new author, new series of books today that I want you to pay close attention to. C.J. Box is in studio with me. Now, this is different than the other books I've done, now, it, it, because they're not, but they might be thrillers. What do I mean by that? There are no spies, except there are. There are no special forces, except there is. And it's just about the American West. You don't have Gabriel alone. You don't have Mitch Rapp, but you do have Joe Pickett and, of course, Nate, Nate Romanowski. And uh, C.J. Box, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is so great. We're going to have fun on this, but people are also going to get a lot of politics because as I read through the Joe Pickett novels, I became increasingly convinced you're a man on a mission, not only to sell a lot of books, <laughs> but you're on a mission. Well, what would you describe that mission? Well, um. I guess a, 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 a quest for reasonableness in uh, in a lot of the controversies uh, involving natural resources and, of course, politics, too. But I try to show both sides and have it be a balanced view and let the reader come down where they may. And what I find, which I love, are readers who um, who buy the books for the, the, the page-turning part of it and find out that they, they've been exposed to another viewpoint on a subject that they've never been exposed to before. And I talk to them all the time, and they'll say, I never thought about that. And, and that's, that's, that's my goal. And, and you know, C.J. Box, you, I like books that make you smart while they entertain you. <laughs> and that's why I've got – I love Silva, and I love Vince Flynn. And, I do, and, too. And Stephen Pressfield, because I get smart. And, uh, and, and Bernard Cromwell, who teaches me about the Napoleon. I get smart as I'm being entertained. When I picked up, and I think you heard me say this, you were kind enough to to say you're not going to hate open season because I'm not a mystery guy. I'm not. I'm not a detective guy. But Every these time are I not hear mysteries. you say that, I would cringe. And oh, but these aren't mysteries. I mean, there are mysteries in them. But do you think you're technically in that genre? You're probably sold in that part of the bookstore. That's the thing. That's the that's the part of the bookstore I want to be in because that's where people buy books. But no, I, I've never never thought about it that way. To me, mysteries. Um, growing up were whodunits, and I, so I never thought about it that way. And um, but I'm glad they're there, and um, it, it's a great genre. And that's you know, look at the New York Times list; half of them are quote mysteries, crime thrillers, and uh, that's that's where I'm happy to be. Now there are ten Joe Pickett novels. You got a number of other books besides that, right? Uh, convey to people who are just hearing about you for the first time. They're, I'm sure the the box people are tuned in, but the people who don't know you. How many Joe Pickett novels have been sold? Not not numbers of a distinct one, but numbers in print. 
Oh, it's I it, it it's impossible to say because I know on the domestic side um, how many hardcovers and paperbacks, and you know we're probably into the you know we're into the hundreds of thousands. But then they're now in twenty five languages, and it's really tough to get numbers um, that are accurate in any way. Are you That's amazed? Right. I mean, two thousand and one is the first Joe Pickett novel. It hadn't been ten years, right? I am amazed. Yes, because I thought I always thought. Um, uh, writing the first one, that if I could get it published, that I would have, I you know, I've got an ego. I, I thought people in the in the Rocky Mountain West would find it interesting, but it's really surprised me a lot how they how they've grown and what they've done. Now I'm a, of course in my other life I'm a land use and environmental lawyer, right? And so I know the Endangered Species Act. I know these federal agencies, but I don't know much about the outdoors. I've been fly fishing exactly once. <laughs> I and remember so, hearing yeah, that? Yeah, story. and so so and I I make my Yellowstone jokes, which we'll come to in just a moment. There's a whole <laughs> novel about Yellowstone in the series, America. But but generally speaking, I want to compliment you. You've done your work. When it comes to like the ESA and EIRs and all this kind of stuff, Thank but you. you are not now, nor have you ever been a lawyer. No, no, I have not. Okay, just want to make that. Let's do some biography, C.J. Box. Sure. Where are you from originally? I'm from Wyoming originally. Born in Casper, Wyoming. Um, grew up in Wyoming. I uh, uh, was a journalist, um, high school journalist, um, editor of my paper, and got a. Uh, 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 scholarship to the University of Denver. Which high school did you go to? Uh, Kelly Walsh High School. Okay, in, in Casper. In Casper. Okay. There's only two. Are there? Are the Cheneys from Casper? Yes, I thought they so. Are. I, I read Lyd Cheney's uh, autobiography, and that Casper comes up quite a lot. In okay. fact, um, uh, the Cheney parents used to be down the street from my parents. Okay. And late in life, my mom was great friends with them. Do you know the former vice president or Mrs. Cheney? I've met him a couple of times. In fact, on a, on a, on one of the book tours, we arranged. Um, to go see uh, Dick Cheney in his office. I imagine he likes these books. Has you know he had what? a chance to read them yet? He, 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 I, I think, I don't know if he's read them. He doesn't read novels. His wife has, and yeah. his wife actually um, commented and made some recommendations around. But uh, what was funny is that we spent the whole time talking about hunting and fishing and the fact that he had been arrested by one of the game wardens I use as a technical advisor in his youth. No kidding? And that guy still has the ticket book in Casper to show him. Okay, so you go down to DU, great university. Why did you pick Denver? Well, they picked me. Um, it was the best deal for college. Um, I wanted to get out of the state like everybody you know thinks they do, and it was, wasn't that far away. And it was, it was a culture shock for me because it, it is a private university, and I'd never been around that type. Yeah, you and Condoleezza Rice are probably their most famous graduates at this point. So, uh, it's great university, wonderful I university. And, and so, did you study to be a writer there, or were you pursuing other mass communications, which is journalism? Okay, that's that's the that's the way I went. Um, and that and you know, it took a while. Uh, that was you know I, from high school. That was uh, the Wood Wood Woodstein and Woodward and Bernstein era. I wanted to be an investigative reporter. You're not old enough to have been around in the Woodward and Bernstein era. No, but I remember the the movie. Okay. The movie. There you go. <laughs> so <laughs> you get out of what year do you graduate from? Do you? Uh, Eighty one. And so, what do you do at that point? That was the thing. I found a, a journalism degree from a nice university got me nowhere. I, I luckily, luckily. Um, found out about a, uh, a new little newspaper job in Saratoga, Wyoming, southern Wyoming, and uh, contacted them. And after being bouncing around for a few months, went there and, and uh, was hired, luckily. Job interview took place in a drift boat while fishing. and um, I just shuddered involuntarily. <laughs> My friend, Jan, Jan Janura's listening, who trapped me in those drift boats for the, the Baton Drift March. 
Go ahead. So. I don't consider it trapped. But, <laughs> I know. Okay. I know. You people are different. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was there for uh, three and a half years, four years, um, working, you know, every little aspect of, a, of a, a little community newspaper, which still serves me extremely well um, in all of the books. And it was like, it's like everything I ever did set me up for what I'd eventually do. And I learned a lot about the community, about the ranching, um, all the issues, uh, just all the tensions that exist in a small community, which um, these kind of books. How big is Saratoga? It's only 2,000 people. Okay, so it's very much like Saddle String. Right, it very much is. Uh, Saddle String's kind of patterned on that. Uh, Saddle String is the the mythical home of uh, Joe Pickett, the the hero, anti-hero, I don't know what we're going to call him, of of these novels and of this drama that builds over 10 books. Uh, CJ, did you grow up obviously hunting and fishing? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's just something that my relatives did. Um, that was just something everybody did. I think I made some references in the book where, you know, certain times of the year in Wyoming, you greet each other with, you know, have you gotten your elk yet? And how many elks have you gotten? Uh, not as many as you might think, um, two or three. Okay, did you ever get a bear? No. Okay, and so the, uh, and do you still own guns? Yes, a lot of them. And, and uh, in terms of the Wyoming personality, which comes through in all these books, which is the Western personality, do you think you're kind of in the center of that? Do you sort of represent that ethic? I think I do. I think I do. Um, you know, it, what, what's interesting, and, and I know we'll get into some of this, but what's interesting to me, you know, looking from 50,000 feet down is that, the, you know, places like Wyoming and Montana are certainly, on the, uh, you know, are considered 10 years behind everything else. But really, on the, they're in the forefront of so many environmental and resource kind of issues. You know, that we're, this is where the energy comes from. This is where the environmental movement is rabid on one side and, the, and the, you know, the energy, move, energy developers on the other. You know, the, the windmills are going up like crazy right now, uh, the wind turbines. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. You know, the wolf introduction, all that. We're in the, we're in the epicenter of that. And, uh, and, and I, I like to portray that as accurately as I can. The wolves show up in, uh, in uh, Nowhere to Run. Right, and, also Savage Run. And Savage Run. And, and I gather that's one of the currents here. This is one of the continuing controversies which we'll talk about today. We've got the whole show to do it in. Before we rush off to that, though, uh, what, what took your mom and dad to Wyoming? Um, my dad was uh, was in the Navy, and he, he and his buddy, um, once they got out, uh, went to work for the oil refinery. Um, his buddy went to work in the oil refinery, and my dad became a teacher. Okay. And uh, my mother grew up. She was a, a third-generation Wyoming, Montana girl. And so do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I've got one younger brother who's 10 and then two sisters in the middle. And are they all still in Wyoming? No, two, two of the three are. Two of the three are. The other one's in North Dakota. Okay, when we come back from break, America, I'm going to tell, we're going to, we're going to dive into some of the characters you'll hear a lot. Uh, when did your first book come out, 2001? Correct. And how long did it take you to sell it? For five years after it was written. Wow. You know, I find this always to be amazing. It's always the same story, whether it's <laughs> Vince Flynn or Daniel Silva. They always, it takes a long time to sell that uh, first book. Yes, it's such, a, it's such a weird business. And you get over rejection in a hurry, huh? You, well, you have to, yes. We'll, we'll tell that story when we come back. I know whenever I do one of these, the writers always write me afterwards, the would-be writers, the wannabe writers out there always ask me, to, why did you not get more detail on that? And I will when I come back. 1-800-520-1234 is the, the, uh, the number, but I'm not going to have any time for you today. I'm going to be talking to CJ Box myself. 
His website is cjbox.net. His most recent book is Nowhere to Run. You've got to start with open season, though. We'll talk more about that when we come back. All the details are listed at hughhewitt.com. Stay tuned, America. Special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. She grew up in the city in a little subdivision. Her daddy wore a tie. Mama never Welcome back, America. 21 minutes after the hour. Things are going to get Western around here real quick. That's a line from C.J. Box's many magnificent, wonderful novels where Joe Pickett is facing what could become a very bad situation in many of these extraordinary adventures set in Wyoming and in Montana. A little bit of Colorado in there. There's some Idaho. There's Yellowstone. We'll talk more about that. But if you want sort of an epic set of adventures in the modern West, in the West of the last uh, of the new millennium, the last 10 years, you're going to look up C.J. Box's books, beginning with Open Season. C.J. Box is my guest here. It's one of my special day-long conversations with an author who matters, an author who's changing the way people think, not just entertaining them, but changing the way they think, as C.J. will do when you read his books. Uh, C.J. Box, right before we plunge in, though, um, I asked you about your first book, and that meant getting an agent. And mm-hmm. so you wrote it, obviously. Were you on the on the newspaper when you were writing this thing, or were right. you already moved on? Yeah, No, I, I was on the newspaper. I had graduated. I, I never took – I could never finish a creative writing class in college. So my whole background was from the journalism standpoint. But when, when I was on the little newspaper, I started – then writing uh, fiction. And so when did when did Joe Pickett arrive, the game warden at the heart of this series, which is at the heart of the C.J. Box career? It took a while because my interest with Open Season, the first book, was was what the issue was, which is endangered species law and how, you know, well-meaning legislation can go awry on the ground where it actually takes place. And that so that that was my impetus. And it was kind of based on the black-footed ferret story that did happen in Wyoming um, where a species thought extinct was found, and then we found out all sorts of locals knew about it for years but kept their mouth shut. And that fascinated me. I wanted to do that in, a, in fictional form. And uh, the first time I went through the – started writing it, um, the protagonist was going to be a local sheriff, and that just didn't work for me. Um, then he was going to be a journalist, which didn't work for me. And But at the time I was working on this little newspaper, I was doing ride-alongs with a local game warden as part of my job. And I realized that's the guy. He's, you know, they uh, they have districts up to, you know, three or 4,000 square miles. They don't have backup. They work out of their homes. Their families are involved in the job. Um, almost everyone they confront is armed and out in the field. And I realized what a, you know, what a fantastic Without backup. I mean, over and over again, you really do. I think you must be the favorite novelist of game wardens across the United (laughs) States and the world. The few that there are, yeah. Do do they send you notes, though? Yes, they do. Uh, And every place I go, I get patches, and and it's pretty great. I'm an honorary game warden in North Carolina, and... Um, yeah, the, the Wyoming Game Wardens Association gave me a plaque, which I, I really, I, I really enjoy. Of that. course. Now, Joe Pickett, who is this game warden, starts out in the Saddle String District, and he's what badge fifty four. There are like fifty four badges, right? Right, and and they their badges go, their numbers go up as they gain seniority, unless they're like Joe Pickett, who gets in trouble and they knock him back down to fifty four. But but so when he starts, how old is he in in, in open season, roughly in your mind? Um, thirty two, thirty three. So these are real time books. One of the right. reasons I like it. Like the uh, Gabriel alone of the uh, of the uh, Dan Silva series, and, and like Vince Flynn's Mitch Rep, he ages mm-hmm. and his family grows up with him, and so you're following a life as you walk through these various adventures. Right. Uh, uh, let's give people. So he's a game warden, and you talked about the job. They have complete plenary authority as well. Right? Yeah, they do. They've got a lot of responsibility, and um, it, it really did surprise me once I really got into it how how autonomous they are. 
in, and it's not in every state. It's not always the same situation, but certainly in Wyoming, um, Montana, um, they're they're kind of the local authority. Um, they you know they, they they name their own hours. They work the days they want to work. Um, they do have you know there is some oversight. They're not crazy guys, but depending on what they do, they're out for days. Um, and you know the, the kind of things and people they encounter is fascinating. Now the the game warden in California is a completely different character. Up north, it might be different from down south. They're becoming much more bureaucratic, much more extensions of the the permitting bureaucracy. Uh, you noted from the time Vern Dunnigan is the first game warden, we we run into Joe Pickett through the end of them. Mm-hmm. The culture is changing in that lifestyle, right? Isn't it? Right. Who well, goes into that work now? Uh, well, it's still. I mean, it, at least in the West, it's still um, you know people with uh, sometimes with game management or uh, biology degrees, um, where at one time it was more of a law enforcement kind of kind of job. But the game wardens I, I meet and find are, uh, in most cases, very much kind of throwback uh, guys. They're, you know, they're they're politically aware. They know they have to deal with the bureaucracy, but they still do what they've always done, which I find really interesting. One of the major characters, Nate Romanowski, right? Uh, and and that sounds like a linebacker, so we like that. He sounds like a linebacker he used to play for, I think. The Browns, but I'm not sure. Bill Romanowski used to play for the Broncos. The Broncos, was that it? Uh, maybe that's why I flashed on him. There's a <laughs> Romanowski for the Broncos. And, uh, and and Nate is a retired Special Forces guy. Uh-huh. And, and the West is sort of full of people like this, isn't it? It is. It really is. And, and tell people a little bit about Nate. He is a, a falconer, um, his, he, he, meaning he flies falcons. And um, he's kind of an outlaw falconer who has had um, some kind of unexplained um, experiences when he was in the special forces so that he's got his own code. He's got his own sense of justice. He's got a, a somewhat murky stream of income and um, he's, he's an outcast, but he also carries at, at least when I wrote the first, wrote the first book, the most powerful handgun in the world. Now it's the second most powerful handgun. Is or that a third. real gun? Yes, it is. Tell people about where that gun is made. The 454 Kozel, right? Am I saying? Kasul. Kasul. Okay. It's, uh, it's made in Freedom, Wyoming at Freedom Arms. And have you been to Freedom Arms? I have. I've been there a couple of times when I found out. I'm not a gun guy necessarily, but it fit his character so well. It's a revolver. Yeah, it's a five-shot revolver that will kill cars. And um, I, I, that was the perfect kind of weapon for this guy. In, in the newest – the book that will come out next year, he's going to upgrade to a 500 Wyoming Express, which is even bigger. Is it made also by Freedom Web yes, Arms? It, yeah, Freedom Arms. Boy, they yes. must love you. They do, actually. Yeah. They <laughs> sold a bunch of guns. I'll bet you they've sold quite a few guns. All right. Uh, Mary Beth is married to Joe Pickett. They have three daughters, Sheridan and Lucy in April. There are complications in this. But I'm curious, uh, as the father of girls, mm-hmm. how long have you been married for? Uh, 20 Five years, 26 in just okay, a couple so weeks. What, what does uh, the fetching Mrs. Box think of Mary Beth, and what do the girls think of the girls who are fictional here? The fetching Mrs. Box approves of Mary Beth. <laughs> there are, you know, there's certainly some attributes. My wife's a horsewoman, and uh, she's also the smartest member of the family and the one who keeps everything going. So I, I, I certainly draw from that. Um, she's also my first reader, first editor. Um, she gets all the chapters as they're written and, and has been wonderfully helpful and my oldest my girls um my oldest two are twins 24 and uh they they also read the manuscripts and and offer suggestions have they stayed in wyoming uh they are now i've got one i'm sorry to say is about ready to go to law school oh and and go to drake you can't save her (laughs) i can't i'm trying i'm trying and and in terms of i I keep thinking uh, 
I, the character I like the least in all of these books is Missy, the mother-in-law. Oh, yes. Is your mother-in-law like Missy? No, mine's much worse. Oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, I just say that. No, that's, no, mine, I have a wonderful so much mother-in-law. Trouble. You know, we're, we, we, make, we put transcripts of this up, and that's going to get sent to her. If you, you better make your amends right now, pal. But, but she's a recurring character and, and sort of another creature of the West, the climber. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Are, are there are there more people like that than we know out there? You know, I don't know. Uh, she I mean, I, and she's the kind of character where I'm not. Exa- I didn't pattern her on anybody I've ever met or any I've ever really read about because she she's she's worse. And but <laughs> she's but worse. she's a fascinating character. And as an antagonist toward Joe, she's she's the most formidable. There are going to be a lot of people out there. My mother in law is gone. And I loved her, but there are going to be a lot of people out there. If what I've heard is true, will identify Missy. Uh, we'll be right back, America. C.J. Box is my guest on the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. All of his books, the Joe Pickett novels and more, are linked at HughHewitt.com. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt with C.J. Box, novelist extraordinaire. Go out and pick up his book, start with Open Season, then move on to Savage Run, then go to Wikipedia. Make sure you read them in order. I, you know, it's one of those tensions. I'm one of those guys that has to read them in order. And uh, as I got behind, because I just miscalculated uh, when you were coming in, I asked you if I could throw one out. So I threw one out at your, request, at your suggestion. I think it was Trophy Hunt. Trophy right? Hunt. Trophy right. Hunt. But the re- I'll go back now and read it, but but I do read them in order. And... Uh, uh, Governor Rulon, let's go back to the key characters here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor Rulon of Wyoming, is he based on anyone other, or just someone you wished was there and would govern the way you wished he would govern? Uh, he's ba- he's more, more more the the latter. He is based on a couple of Western governors who um, I've encountered because he, he's 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 pretty impulsive. He uh, does his own thing. Um, I, I based him a little bit on a former South Dakota governor. And uh, because and the, the one current, who's in jail now. Yes. Yes. OK. <laughs> the current governor of Wyoming, I have to say, does read the books and gives me critiques on them. Thinks I'm a little hard on the governor. Uh, but but I'm happy that he reads them. Now, there are there is a vast cast of characters. As I said to people, this is like Harry Potter for grownups in the West. <laughs> and they're recurring characters. I think my favorite is Large Merle. And, oh. and they're, they're all over the place. But uh, Large Merle, how big is Large Merle? He's, I think he's like 350 pounds, 6'7". He's, he's a cook. Are you always making notes as you drive around Wyoming of people and places and how they act? I am, oh, yes. And, 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 you know, probably about a quarter of the characters are based on real people. The rest are just types or people I might see across the parking lot or, you know, in the back of a cafe or a bar. And, and, and then I just kind of come up with that type. And now as we thrust in these books and talk about the overarching themes, I, I want to know, did you know where you were going when you started? No. And so no. when did when did that develop? When did Joe Pickett become not just a book to sell, a way of testing your writing skills, but a character who was going to inhabit a world and that world was going to become big and full of people? Well, you know, I'd have to say with the second book, because the first one was written in my mind, as a standalone, um, a book about the endangered species law featuring a game warden. Yeah. When uh, it took four years to get there, I had an agent who, uh, to this day, I don't know, I actually ever sent it around. Um, I'd, he, he, he'd get mad at me when I'd call and say, is anything happening? And later I went to a, a, a convention and pitched the book to a guy, and he said, well, don't you have an agent? And I said, yes, I told him his name. And the guy said, you didn't know he had died? And he'd been dead for like seven months. Your agent had been my dead first. For seven yeah, my first agent was dead. <laughs> so let that be a lesson to you, would-be writers. <laughs> so luckily, 
at that same particular convention, there was an editor from Putnam who was in, showed interest in the book. So um, that started it. And then the, the con- first contract offer was for three books featuring Joe Pickett. That's when it got going. I didn't have a strategic plan. So that editor at Putnam, did they read your book? Sure. And, and, that's, and that's when they said, okay, there's something here. And did they say, I want three Joe Pickett novels? That's exactly what they said. So they wanted something to build on. Has Joe Pickett been optioned, by the way? Uh, the f- open season, the first book was optioned um, by Bruce Willis's company. And, you know, screenplays developed and then more screenplays done. Each one got hor- horrifically worse. And then eventually that got dropped. Um, so, no, there's been interest. Um, it's been pitched at a TV series, but, you know, there's nothing. It's like an HBO on. series is really what it is. But I think it is. Yeah. Oh, I, I, it, it's, it's fascinating. Okay, let's get to the, to the business not, uh, end of this stuff. When a book like this takes off, when did, is it Putnam? When did Putnam mm-hmm. figure out, wow, we have something here that we're going to be able to build into a brand and, and drive because it engages a whole bunch of people like Hugh Hewitt on the West Coast living in <laughs> suburbia and your governor of Wyoming and Lynn Chain. You know, it just engages hunters, naturalists. I'm sure environmentalists read these with great interest. Uh, yes, I, I hear from a lot of them, and, and most of them are, are actually pretty complimentary. Oh, they're fair. They think, they're they, fair. They think uh, I got their side right. Okay, so... Um, I, I don't know when – I think probably the first book because um, it's one of those deals where with open season, everything that's not supposed to happen with the first novel did, luckily. Um, went into multiple printings. It won more first novel awards than any book since in the genre. So it really made a splash, even though it wasn't a huge number of copies among those who uh, pay attention to these things. It, it got it on the uh, – got me on the map. And, and how how often do you have to write a Joe Pickett novel now? One a year. It's just one, one a year? year? Yes. And so how long is that going to go for? Uh, since the age is in real time, as long as it makes sense. And are you are you making notes constantly of controversies into which to insert them? Yes. I, I've got a file. I've got files and clippings, and and uh, and I always have two or three out ahead of me. And at the end of the book, then I decide which one of those three or four makes the most sense next. Okay. When we come back, how and when do you work? Because, again, when I talk to writers, the characters matter, the stories matter. In this one, the politics matter a great deal. But people always want to know how and when the writer works. I'll tell you that. We come back with C.J. Box. His website, cjbox.net, is linked at hughhewitt.com. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Wake up in the morning. Miles from 44 minutes after the Air America, it's a Hugh Hewitt Show, special edition, one of my annual conversations with a writer who's captured my imagination, obviously the imaginations of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of readers in the United States and across the globe. C.J. Box is in studio with me, his website, cjbox.net, linked at hughhewitt.com. The first book is open season. Number 10 in the Joe Pickett series is nowhere to run in between a lot of entertainment, extraordinary page turning, and some other books. Before I press on a little bit, uh, Blue Heaven. Mm-hmm. It's set in northern Idaho, right. not Wyoming. It involves the LAPD and big city crime and big right. city cops. It's the only one of your books I haven't finished because I chose to listen to it uh, on an MP3 in my iPhone, and I miscalculated. It's a nine-hour listen. I never buy the yeah, abridged big version. Book. Big book. Fascinating. And and it, is that a future for you? Or are you uh, Joe Wambaugh is not happy that you're doing this, I don't <laughs> think. But, but is this... Are you going to branch out more and more? Because it's a very compelling read. Well, I, I, I am currently alternating standalones um, like Blue Heaven, a book called Three Weeks to Say Goodbye, another one coming out set in Yellowstone called Back and Beyond with series. So every other book now is a standalone, um, which I enjoy doing. And Blue Heaven uh, really has been successful. And, oh, it's it's because it's a real – I have no idea what's going to happen. Good. As good. I told him as I walked in – 
uh, and CJ was in the studio. I'm uh, about six hours into a 10-hour listen, and uh, the two key characters have come together, Jess Rollins and uh, Vittorio. And, uh, and so I, I just have no idea what's going to happen next, and I love that. And I'm not going to tell anyone. The, the hard thing about these interviews is to do it without giving away anything. It is. But to communicate essence. And I think we're going to go. We're going to do fine here. Okay. Where and when do you work? I, I work every day. Just, um, I've got a, I live outside of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I've got a, just a, a really unimpressive uh, basement home office um, with a view of the window well. And that's where I that's where I work. I go to every. You mean morning. you don't like have the Madison River in front of you, or some great Madison's in the wrong state? But but you don't have some great mountain to look at. Well, we do have a cabin on a river that I spend a lot of time out okay. time on now, and and get a lot of work done. But primarily, um, I'm in the the basement office. And five days a week, seven days a week, five days a week. Okay. And and are you a morning or afternoon evening writer? I'm a morning guy. First thing down there, right? Do you yep. turn on the computer first? Do you want to know what's going on in the world, or do you send yourself to the basement? First? No, I do. I do check out you know the news and the blogs and have coffee and work out and then start. Okay. And so, what do you do to work out? I I do a spinning class. I or and or um, weights. Okay. Now, in terms of um, what do you read? Oh, I, I mean, I read everything. I read fiction, nonfiction, fiction, nonfiction. That's how I have my stack. And about every fourth one is a crime or, you know, mystery or thriller type book. So you're not worried about polluting your ideas by cross-pollination with other thriller, mystery writers? Or no, anything? I think I mean, I'm now comfortable that I have my own voice. And, but, I, but I do learn, um, you know, from reading other thrillers and mysteries. And, and the, the good ones are as good as anything being written in fiction. Who haven't I interviewed that I ought to interview? Oh, that I ought to uh, read their work. Uh, Michael Connolly is great. You know, I've never read Michael Connolly. The other guy on my list is Dean Koontz. I've started Dean Koontz, and I've just got to set aside a month. Because mm-hmm. I, I like to do it this way. I like to dive in. But, I like you to do it this yeah, way. Th- this too, is yeah. the way. That, that's all fresh then. But uh, So in terms of uh, uh, newspapers and current events, where do you get your news from? Um, I, 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 on the computer. I mean, it's, it's all... Uh, uh, blogs and you know, all right. National well, Review Online. Company, okay, National Review Online. So you're a conservative. Yes, I gathered that, but you're a very fair-minded conservative. Are you reading Powerline, the guys in Minnesota. Absolutely. Okay, that that's every day. And so, um, in, in terms, you take the New York Times and all those things as well. I don't take them. No, I'll go look, uh, but I, I don't read them regularly. Okay, I get them on my Kindle every morning. All right, research. We mentioned the 454. How do you say that? Kasul. Kasul revolver, the second most powerful. Now you say the third most powerful. <laughs> uh, it's on Winterkill, page 101. It shows up. And uh, and then you have quotes all through these things, like Lord Alfred Lord Tennyson, I must lose myself in action lest I wither in despair, or he is mad past recovery but yet has lucid interval. I mean, all these things, where do you get this stuff from? Um, I mean, I've got books of quotes, um, but I'm also always on the lookout for quotes. Um, I, I tend to take too many Tocqueville quotes, but, yeah, yeah, there's but a they're lot of so Tocqueville. great and they're so prescient and they're so perfect for what I'm writing about that I just keep putting those in. I thought it might be because the Old West or the, or the Mountain West remains as close to what Tocqueville saw as any part of the country. That's perceptive as well, too. Yeah, that's but his his talk about society and the individual uh, um, is so perfect and it's so modern. And, and, and is the individual in this world the most important thing to you? I think so. I, that's what I. You also know dogs, trucks, and horses pretty doggone well. <laughs> Tube, buddy, and endless display of pickups. Do you own a pickup? Uh, yes. 
Do you yeah, have a dog? I, we, we have a dog. We're getting a new Labrador here in a month. Now, your description, I'm doing this from memory, of, uh, of Tube being a combination of a corgi and a lab. And That's a lab right. loving everyone and a corgi being an annoying from hell dog. That's right. Why did you come up with this mix? Because <laughs> I have a lab and a corgi. Oh, so they're together? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. And you named them Tube. Yeah. Are there such things? Have you ever seen a mix of those I've only, two? I've only seen one. And it, and it as described, lab body and little stubby legs and a bad attitude. Okay. And now you've got... A, a, a horsewoman for a wife. Right. And and there's a lot about horses in here, which is all Greek to me. Dwayne's a big writer, as you can tell. Yeah. But obviously. But but do you ride a lot? I don't ride nearly as much as my wife does. But we, we do we go on trail rides. I've been, you know, I've been on wilderness pack trips and fishing trips by horseback. So it's more like using the horse to get to where you want. I'm not I'm not pa- as passionate about horses, but my wife certainly is. And, you know, she gives me all the corrects all my, my bad horse information. Yeah, what's interesting is I consider all these books false advertising because of my experience fly fishing. In terms of you make you make hunting and packing and camping and elk camp sound really wonderful. Well, they can be, actually. I, I, did you grow up going to these things? I did um, yeah, in, in Wyoming. I mean, that's that's what you do. That's what's available. And, and, it, and it's then later in life you realize that that's it, that's the best there is, um, that people will spend lots and lots of money and time to go do the things that we just always did. And so, and I still love it. And the, the outfitters who took care of us when I was on the Madison River last summer, these are guys who live for this sort of thing. They do. Do they read your books? Do they critique you? Because these must be the hardest critics of all, the people who actually live this and that's, life. And that's one of the things I love the best is that um, my readership includes a lot of crusty guys who you would think would never pick up a book. And um, I meet them all over the place, truck drivers, outfitters, guides, um, cowboys, ranchers. Um, I know ranchers only read them during calving season because they're up all night. And I love the fact that they, that they will read if they find something they like. Uh, we'll be right back. C.J. Box is my guest. Calving season, is there's a scene in, uh, in uh, Blue Heaven about calving. I now know more about giving birth to cows than I ever thought I needed to know. We'll talk about that and much more. We come back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt, the short segment with C.J. Box. Two more hours straight ahead. If you walked in the middle of this, you're going to have to go to the universe to uh, listen to it, or Dwayne will eventually get up the transcript of it and you can read it. But what you really ought to read are the books, and then you'll appreciate this much, much more. C.J. Box, the author of, uh, well, at least 10 Joe Pickett novels. And how many other novels, Joe? Two, uh, two others that are out. So there are 12 out there mm-hmm. right now and more coming. And I now have a lifetime addiction ahead of me. And I hope you, long may you write. His oh, website is cjbox.net. Let's dive in. Open season, the very first book, the one that sets the tone for this. A lot of geography in here. Mm-hmm. And how much geography and geology do you have to know to write this way, this knowingly about the West. You know, surprisingly, it's not like I've studied it, um, but, but, it but by coming from there and, and because the landscape is such an important part of everybody's life every day, it kind of comes in just naturally. When you were growing up, I mean, would you go deadheading around the state? I mean, sure. is this something that all kids in Wyoming do? They just grab their pickups and go? Well, everything is a long ways from either from the Knicks. So, yeah, you spend a lot of time on the road. And it's kind of like, you know, growing up even in high school, the high school teams, you're going on long trips for every game and staying in little communities. You know, it's not across town. And do you feel comfortable just being anywhere in the outdoors? Uh, it, it depends. You know, I don't look at uh, nature, I don't look at it as benevolent, wonderful, you know, nature. I'm a nature lover. I think it's a very amoral. 
um, but can also be fascinating and, and beautiful. Who writes the best about the outdoors, in your opinion? Who do you who do you look to to describe? Not necessarily in a thriller context, but just someone you've quoted Wallace Stegner a lot yeah. in your books. Yeah, well, he's certainly good. Um, uh, I mean, Cormac McCarthy writes beautifully about the outdoors, although he's not considered that kind of writer um, because he can capture things as well as anyone. Um, a guy named Mark Sprague in Wyoming. And do you aspire writer. to be known as someone who is good at that as well as as a thriller, a page turn, and a political content? Well, sure. Because you're good at this. Uh, thank and, you. Uh, communicating uh, beauty. and it's, a, it's very different, though, than shoot them up and... What it Vince is. Flynn does, and and I tend to pair that stuff back the the description in it, but but I think it, it's it's I think it's just very important for the reader to be able to be there, and in order to be there, they've got to know what it looks, smells, and what the light is like. And all the places that show up in these ten novels, have you been to them? Yes, although some many of them are fictionalized, right? But but like Savage Run, book two, which we'll talk about the t- next hour. I don't know if there's a Savage Run. Is there? There is a canyon. It's not called Savage Run, and it's not in that part of the Bighorns, but it's based on that. Wow! And so, did you go there and look at it? I was elk hunting and found the, the place where the Indians crossed from one side to the that other. That was fascinating. So that exists. That does exist, but it's in northern Wyoming um, and on a private ranch. And when you do one of those, do you purposely disguise it so they don't get overrun with with CJ Box readers? If it is a if it's private like that, yes, I do. I don't want to inundate anybody. All right, we'll talk a little bit about the consequences of showing up in a CJ Box book. When we come back, hour number two, straight ahead, America. If I've got you hooked and baited, then I've done my job. Stay tuned. The payoff is coming. CJBox.net is linked at HughHewitt.com. I'll be right back. Morning, glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hour number two of a uh, conversation with C.J. Box, best-selling author of the Joe Pickett series. If you haven't read them, you're going to want to. If you're the most closeted indoors person ever, you never go outside, we're going to be able to live vicariously through this. And if you're an outdoorsman, a hunter, if you're a law enforcement person, anyone who loves animals, if you're an environmentalist or an anti-environmentalist, these are the books for you. If you want to sort of read about the life you've been living and about the places you've been fighting over, this is the book. And uh, cjbox.net uh, is the website. Uh, CJ, let's go right to open season. The heart of this book is the Endangered Species Act. I know this well. I've lived it for 20 years. You got it. Not many people get it. Thank you. At the conclusion of that, and, I, and I've done Pacific Pocket Mouse, which is like Miller's Weasel, mm-hmm. a very small number of them living in one place. And then I've done Nat Catchers, and, which are there are millions of them, and they shouldn't be on the Endangered Species Act. <laughs> at the end of it, what do you think of the act, having studied it, written it, and been sort of a – you tried to represent it, I thought, very fairly. I think a good, well-meaning legislation that's gone awry, that um, it, that in so many cases is used as a tool and a weapon as opposed to a means of saving endangered species. And so the black-footed ferret is that what that was based on? Is that what you were telling me about? Right, right. And I found that fascinating when it really when it really came out um, in Wyoming when this species thought extinct was discovered and and what what the ramifications of that were was to the to the community. And the fact that uh, half of them died because of one of the researchers' dogs introduced a disease to them. That, that's what, you know, the, the old adage in the West was shoot, shovel, and shut up. Right. When it comes to an endangered species, of course, that's a criminal act. And we, I don't advise my clients to do that, but is that an attitude you've found in the West generally about these well-meaning laws which destroy people's livelihoods often? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, you know, that's that's very an underlying philosophy. Um, and I don't want to say they're all outlaws, but but a lot of people who, you know, confronting confronted with these things, 
um, make that choice. All right. In the second book, we're introduced to Stewie Woods, right. who is an environmental activist, one of, of perhaps three who show up in the book. There are three distinct ones, the woman, the, the anti-hunting guy, and then Stewie Woods is the mm-hmm. first one. And, and one of the reasons I like all the Joe Pickett novels is that you make me like some environmental activists. <laughs> and generally, although some of the, the lawyers at the Natural Resources Defense Council become my friends over the years, I'm just generally not a fan of them because they're they're very focused, very narrow. They don't understand what they do to the other side. What what do you base these characters on? Um, in, in some cases, real people, uh, you know, real figures. Uh, a few I've met. Um, in fact, the Stewie Woods character. Uh, I don't want to say who to mention his name, but uh, uh, one of the guy, founders of Earth First um, actually read the book and thought I he told me I got him right. And it, what's fascinating to me with that whole movement and, and with the whole idea is that, again, starts out well-meaning, but in order to keep that funding going, in order to grow that organization, they have to get angrier and angrier and never be happy with any anything that they achieve. And, and the this, organization gets captured from its founders, Right. Too. And in this case, Stewie Woods, the founder of the, the fictional organization, I said, has been kicked out by them yeah. because, you know, he's he's – He's no longer doing what they want him to do. So there are obviously tens of thousands of Americans who are deeply involved, not merely contributors. There are millions who are contributors, but tens sure. of thousands who are deeply involved as activists in various causes, whether it's it's Earth First on sort of one end of Sea Shepherd or, or you know, the Natural Resources Defense Council or the Center for Biological Diversity or the Sierra Club. Those people who read your books, what do they say to you? Uh, in most cases, they uh, I have had a lot of them say, honestly, that they that they see a different side to issues that they always just assumed were black and white may not change their mind completely, but it may open it a little, mm-hmm. and and that I'm always happy with. In your in for the first time in Savage Run, it recurs. You've got the outsider who's coming in to subdivide and sell off the ranches. Right, Joe Finota, who by the way is a trial lawyer, not one of my favorite people around here. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tim Cook, one of my partners is a trial lawyer, and he's a very good one at that too. And He's taking care of a lot of people over a lot of years, but I beat up on him a lot in this program. And, but there are outsiders all over your books mm-hmm. who jet in, drop in, and divide. Right. You're not a fan of this subclass of, of character, are you? No, I'm not a fan of that subclass of character, although there are certainly out, outsiders who come in and are stewards as well. Um, but in this case, you know, I, I do I'm, I do get after them. I Just, like, you know, any kind of situation where – People from the outside with preconceived notions come into any community or area or culture and say, put, want to put their stamp on it to right the ship is always annoying. Well, how many of these McMansion subdivisions of ranchettes are there? It's slowed down a little in the uh-huh. last couple of years, but they're everywhere um, through, throughout Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. You know, all the areas that used to be more resource-based because they're beautiful um, are now uh, – not all of them, but a lot of them have been developed or subdivided into ranchettes. And, and how often are they there? When I when I went float fishing on the Madison last summer, it didn't strike me that the land had filled up very much. It didn't strike <laughs> right, me that there were right. many people after this influx. Well, partially because there's so much federal land, there's no development on it. Okay. But the private areas, um, the ranches and, and the private holdings, there's a lot of subdivisions. And in some cases, they'll come for two or three weeks. Um, they love to be able to say they own the ranch in Montana or Wyoming and um, and, and again, a lot of them are great stewards, but some of them are just annoying. In this book as well, you've got Sheriff Barnum, who's a good old boy. Uh-huh. Uh, and you got, in fact, you've got an ambivalence about Western law enforcement, which is pretty pronounced. What's yeah. that based on? A part of it, honestly, is just simply to keep the tension level up. 
um, on every page. There should be tension on every page. And, and in order to do that, you know, I've got to always have Joe Pickett, you know, being harangued by somebody for trying to what he considers doing his job. But the, the local sheriff, you know, they're, they're, that goes back. And uh, there are a lot of local sheriffs because they're politicians as well who uh, have their own agendas. Yeah, and so some of them turn out okay. But, sure. But a lot of them are, are less than stellar guys. In uh, Savage Run as well, pronghorns are introduced. Now, I saw my first pronghorns when I was up in Montana oh, last good. summer. And they, and you, you say to them, you're your favorite. They're Joe Pickett's favorite wildlife. Mm-hmm. Is that C.J. Box talking as well? I like them. Yeah, they're they're fast, second fastest animal in the world. And you're also a falcon guy. Yes, although I'm not a falconer. Oh, interesting, because uh, you wrote a book about falconry, didn't you? Or no, something? Um, I've included falconry in, in well, a lot of I thought of I books. saw in your bibliography an article or something about falconry. Where did you learn about falconry? Uh, from uh, friends of mine growing up in high school. Uh, the guy who Nate Romanowski is actually based on was a falconer, um, then went off into the military. And I spent time with him, went hunting with him, which means the humans are the bird dogs and the falcons are the hunters. So you go out and walk through the woods, and rabbits come out, and falcons come down and nail them. How many falconers are there? I mean, this is the first time I've ever even seen it discussed in a book. Well, it's an ancient art. Right. Um, there, you know, I don't know how many there are, uh, maybe several thousand. Um, but they, I, I was in San Diego the other day at a book signing, and a guy brought his falcon in. Oh, uh, you know, he did? It, yeah, which well, was pretty probably cool. selling a lot of books into the falcon <laughs> world. <laughs> Would that it expand? Yeah. Uh, you also, I got to talk about Matt Sandvik now. And this is because of a guy I knew in high school who became a taxidermist. Ah. And whenever I see him at a high school reunion, I kind of steal myself to ask him questions about taxidermy. But you made Matt Sandvik interesting. And oh, I guess cool. there are a lot of taxidermists in the country. In every little, well, certainly in every little town, every, um, you know, there's several taxidermists. They're very competitive. Yeah. You also have um, uh, Congressman Peter Salito, chair of the Natural Resources Committee. Compliment to you. Not many people even know there's a Natural Resources <laughs> Committee. Is he your typical Washington, D.C. politician? There's Senator McGlinty as well at the end. But is this the guy you have in mind running wildlife policy and resource policy? I would say so, yes. Um, because, yeah, he's not, he's not close to the land in any way other than he knows every single thing about it and how everyone should live on it. Do you consider yourself close to the land? I think so. Do most Wyomings? I think it's it's inevitable. Okay. And and last question about uh, open season, not open season, but Savage Run. Do you think there is that potential in the country for that kind of vigilante confrontation between environmentalists and the people who really oppose them, the landowners? Um, you know, I think the potential is there. Uh, uh, and But I don't know. I mean, I don't have any inside track on that going on, but I think the potential is certainly there. And the lines are getting drawn, and I think the the they're getting a little more extreme on both sides. So yeah, something could happen. Now this is the the week that we're taping this originally is the week of the fifteenth anniversary of Timothy McVeigh's blowing up the Oklahoma City oh. building, and Winter Kill has mm-hmm. at its heart sort of a meditation on the anti-government movement, the sovereigns, and and mm-hmm. they're kind of built up out of Montana Freedmen, they're kind of built up out of Waco people and a Ruby Ridge sort of stuff. That's touchy stuff to go into. Yeah, How did you approach this subject? Because it's very, again, you're not, you're not endorsing them, but you not try and understand who they are. Uh, no, and, and I'm not at all sympathetic. Um, but but it, it, to me, it was like you know, it, there's a certain kind of outlier class that um, has every right to be that outlier class. I don't like them. I don't agree with, with what they say, but they have as much freedom of, of speech and expression as anyone else. But they are, um, you know, it, it, through political correctness, you know, 
hated virulently officially by everyone. And um, I guess, you know, I've always I find it fascinating that, you know, that that people who espouse diversity will cannot stand that kind of uh, freedom of speech. I'll be right back. We're going to plunge into the sovereigns and uh, and a whole bunch of other issues of the West and the people, the outlier classes, C.J. Box just described. Don't go anywhere. The books get progressively more well, political. They're all interesting, but much more political as we go forward. C.J. Box is my guest. Stay, stay tuned. His uh, website is linked to HughHewitt.com. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I hope I have hooked you on C.J. Box the way that C.J. Box hooked me. And if you are not that there, you will be after you read Open Season and Savage Run. But the, the book that I think will last the longest, well, maybe Blue Heaven, which is not a Joe Pickett novel because mm-hmm. it's got some interesting things, but we'll cover, is Winter Kill, which is the story of a, a breakaway group, a cult, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's based loosely on sort of an amalgamation of Montana Freeman, Ruby Ridge, we were talking about last segment. The leader of it is uh, Wade Brokius. And how much did you research these marginal outlier groups when you were writing this, C.J. Box? I, I did do, I did, I did some research in Montana, uh, and, and in this case, I didn't, you know, go to their camps. I didn't have interviews with them, but I, 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 uh, I met with several um, small town journalists who covered them, um, especially when the Freeman were were going in in Montana, and uh, got a lot of information about them, how they thought. Um, Actually, cut a lot of that out of the book, but it, it was enough for me to set kind of set the stage on uh, their point of view. And it wasn't that many years after Waco, so I kind of you know used used them both. Now, flash forward to Nowhere to Run, the most recent mm-hmm. of the Joe Pickett novels, and they're kind of back, but it's a different. It's Ayn Rand is back, right. and and, and uh, the objectivists in the in the Upper Peninsula shows up. I'm a Michigan logger ad, so I know about the UP. And all of a sudden, you're back there, and again, you're not sympathetic, but you're objective about why they feel pressed. And so based upon what you know about these groups and about the West, do you expect that movement is going to grow? I have to say yes. So do I. Uh, um, especially now. And and I feel very prescient having um, written Nowhere to Run last year, uh, given you know what's going on in the country now. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just like I, I mentioned earlier, there's so many of the issues – um, big environmental issues tend to have their epicenter in the in the in the West. I think that the anti-government movement, which is occurring across the country, may have its epicenter in the West. Are you old enough to remember Sagebrush? The Sagebrush Rebellion. Yeah, you're a little bit young. I heard of it, yeah, but I wasn't. It was really the precursor to the Tea Parties. It was really the precursor to all this stuff. But it was mainstream. It was not outlier. Mm-hmm. Then it went away, and now it's back in the Tea Parties. And the attempt to define the Tea Parties as outlier, I think, is is a fundamental mistake by I President agree. Obama. It's not outlier. I agree. And I'll bet you you'll find a lot of people reading these books, and especially Nowhere to Run, and not again having any sympathy for lawbreakers, but understanding what drives. Perhaps people who are just beat up by the government. I mean, Kilo versus City of New London doesn't show up in a lot of thrillers. <laughs> no, no, and it does in nowhere to. Run. Yes, it does. And eminent domain is 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 what has forced these people to end up where they're at. It's, it, we'll come back to that. Now, let me also give you a compliment, Melinda Strickland. Oh, yeah. I know her. <laughs> All right, I've been dealing with the federal government. I was in the federal government. I've been dealing with the federal government for twenty years, and I know Melinda Strickland. I know some great feds. Uh, who are in the environmental bureaucracies, and I know some, uh, and, and by saying I know her, it could be a guy. I'm not talking about any individual person, but I know this character, that where they're imperious, disinterested in locals, 
and completely contemptuous of public opinion. In fact, there is a public meeting described on page 171 of Winterkill. As she droned on, several hands were raised in the audience. She looked over the tops of the hands as she spoke as if she couldn't see them. Yeah. <laughs> this is the federal, and she's in the Forest Service. I've right. actually only had good experiences with the Forest Service. Is this what the Western people generally think about federal bureaucrats? So, uh, many do. I mean, I've been in many of those meetings. I, I, I covered them as a reporter and uh, uh, and then just had interest in them. And, the, you know, there's nothing quite like the, you know, the local meeting in the high school gym where everybody comes in to make their point and uh, rarely are any opinions changed or, you know, it's really not a public meeting. It's a public informing. And, uh, it's a public lecture. Exactly. And, and, uh, and, and somehow they always seem to say that there's been all these comments against what everybody in the room said, and they have to weigh those against those, and, and somehow they always win. Oh, I think back to my years as a Stevens kangaroo rat lawyer, and they'd have meeting after meeting, and all the farmers would come, and the farmers would never get to talk. The staff would just go on and on forever, and the, uh, the local elected officials would go on and go on forever, and the farmers would never get to talk. And it would, they'd leave angry as a result mm-hmm. because they just wanted to be heard. And I thought you did a, a tremendous job in this. Thank you. Uh, Reverend Cobb. Uh-huh. Interesting character. Uh, and it, asked, it made me ask myself, what does C.J. Box think about religion? Are you a religious guy? Yes, I am. Um, uh, I mean, we go to church, Presbyterians. I love your line about um, Presbyterians. Church in which I'm least likely me. to be loved. Yeah, hugged, that's right. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but uh, so, you know, yes, I'm, I'm not uh, evangelical, but I'm certainly religious. And are the people of the West, uh, of the Mountain West especially, are they – Particularly faithful. I mean, Reverend Cobb is a different kind of guy. Yeah, that that you know, he's a made up guy. Um, but uh, you know, I I think probably if you looked at numbers, you know, percentages, uh, there's probably a pretty high church going population in, in the Mountain West, like there would be in this. Maybe not as much as the South, but close. Okay, in terms of their political views generally, it's a pretty Republican area. But it then is. you keep sending Max Bacchus. North Dakota's got it. Does that's North Dakota Montana. count as as that's Montana? You said that with a little contempt. I got the whole Idaho Washington State thing from Blue Heaven. You got that down, but is there a Montana Wyoming thing? No, actually, Montana and Wyoming could almost merge. Um, everybody seems to be very like minded, and that is unusual. Um, the Max Bacchus thing, but but the North Dakotans, they, they count as the Mountain West? Well, not really, no. Um, although I think they're they're kind of they're kind of changing too. You know, the big the big Midwestern thing is is uh, I can't I can't explain well. Next book, Out of Range, and this one's really a meditation on Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a couple of seconds here to do here, uh, but it's also got a bear hunt in it. Mm, now yes. I I didn't. Have you been on a bear hunt? I have not been on a bear hunt. This I've was pretty hunting. doggone interesting to me. Is, did game wardens tell you about this? Yeah, I inter- went and interviewed the bear guys who do this all the time. And they're 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 the guys who go get the bad bears, right? A, a fed bear is a dead bear. That's right. And, and do <laughs> fed you ever, meaning feeding, yeah. not a federal bear. Well, well maybe yeah, <laughs> no, it's definitely. But 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 do you have any desire to go on a bear hunt? My friend Ron, who's listening to this, I'm sure, big hunter in Denver, loves to go bear hunting. I can't imagine for a moment going bear hunting. You know, I don't want to go bear. Hunting. There you. <laughs> but not for the reason that of I. It's because one time I saw a, a dead bear hanging in a camp in an elk camp. Um, and it, and it had been skinned, 
and it looked like a man. It looked like a heavily muscled linebacker hanging from a pole, and it creeped me out so much that I never have any desire to go bear hunting. Okay, that's interesting. Um, in Out of Range, you've got the developer tension again, and you've got mm-hmm. the good meat movement. Right. Now, I found that, is that like the slow food movement? Is yeah. that what you were thinking about? It is, and it's some of the same proponents. I read. A, I, I got fascinated by that because I read a, a, a long story in the New Yorker, I believe, um, or New York Times Magazine about, um, you know, New Yorkers who, you know, wanted to somehow introduce their children to the fact that where their meat came from and contract with farmers and ranchers in upstate New York and take their kids out there and say, this, this is the pig you're going to eat. It comes from a pig, which I like the idea and sentiment behind it, but it fascinated me that there would be people that would be that far removed from where their meat comes from, that they would feel a need to do that. There's, there's actually quite a lot of meditation on meat in this and, and on meat eating and the whole vegetarian It's a book thing. about meat. It's a book about meat. <laughs> and, uh, and people, it's a fascinating book about meat. We come back, though, a couple other observations on Out of Range, and then we will move on to In Plain Sight, Free Fire. The rest of the Joe Pickett novels, I haven't gotten to Yellowstone yet. I'm kind of holding on to that because we all know by the time you hear this interview, it could have blown. We'll be right back, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Inflatable pool. Full of dad's hot air well, I was three years old Splashing everywhere And so began My love affair Was water Three four minutes after the hour, America It's Hugh Hewitt Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am I have often heard from my listeners That they envy me these shows Because like me, they, they develop affections for writers and you've heard Stephen Pressfield on the program before and Alex Berenson and Dan Silva and Vince Flynn. Well, C.J. Box is in studio with me today for a show about his Joe Pickett novels, his other books as well, and it's been as much fun as I expected. If you have not yet, I also love when I get emails from you that say, thank you for introducing me to C.J. Box. I'm now hooked. That happens. It's going to happen. I know you're going to love this. And uh, start with open season. Go to Wikipedia. Get the order down. Uh, In fact, C.J., you and I have corresponded about this. Publishers drive me crazy because they never make it easy to figure out what order you're supposed to read these in because they want you to buy whatever's there. Right. Yeah. I, I know that that drives, it drives everybody crazy. Yeah, you usually have to find a website or find somebody who will list them for you. Do you welcome the arrival of Kindle and now the iPad? You know, I think so. Um, I, I look at it a little different. I know there are some, you know, there's certainly some bookstores that are not happy with it, but um, – I think it actually will increase readers rather than decrease readers because it just makes the ease of reading, you know, fantastic. Also I've got lowers a Kindle. the cost of it. Right. I, my wife has an iPad that is, I think, surgically attached to her at this point. And I see I'm flying every every place every day. I'm seeing so many people on planes yeah. um, reading them. It's, it's, it makes it better. And, and I just think because of the order. That when you have series that you want to get into, epics really mm-hmm. of the West or things like that, that you do want to go, you stay in them, you go deep into them, and that that will facilitate. In the old days, you had to wait and do all this sort of stuff. It, it's it's great. Now I want to go back to the bureaucracy uh, because, <laughs> as I have said, I spent twenty years litigating with bureaucrats. I'll spend the next twenty years litigating with bureaucrats <laughs> at the same time. And you both you get the good and the bad. And let's talk mm-hmm. about that. You have an eye for the the person who is actually running things. I think, for example, if Mary Seals runs the Department of Fish and Game in Jackson Hole, mm-hmm. you've got Alice Thunder, who is running the reservation school in a, in a subsequent book. There are these people in bureaucracies who really run them, even though they don't have the title. How did you right. figure that out? I was a state employee. Aha! Uh, um, 
Uh, and it, you didn't tell me that earlier. Okay. Yeah, but between the time I was at the newspaper and my wife and I started a company, I was a state employee for the for the state of Wyoming um, in the tourism department. And, you know, for three and a half years, learned the bureaucracy, thrived in it, but at the same time couldn't wait to get out. That explains a lot. Because I was a Fed for six years, and, I, and so I know the, how the Feds operate. State bureaucracies are slightly different. I've been in a lot of state agencies. But unless you've been on the inside, you really don't understand how a Randy Pope can can't come to be. Randy Pope, a critical figure in your books, tell people who he is. Right. Well, he's he's actually the, the agency director of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department in the books. Joe's boss and nemesis. Yeah. Uh, and and yes, he's he's so much like so many bureaucrats who who reach that level and and play the system and have their own agenda that and um, really kind of despise people like Joe Pickett who who. Go their own way. Yeah, and, and I, I got to say, counting the cost of the trucks that Joe loses, it's a funny <laughs> thing. Did you know that thing? When did you decide you were going to bring up that thing? You know, I, I, it just came. I, I think by the third truck that was wrecked, I realized this is happening every book. I didn't realize. So now it's, you know, yeah, he's famous within the department of having, you know, racked up the most number of, of damage claims. And I find that so, that kind of detail so winsome because uh, you know, we're taping this and my friend Bob the contractor is in and John Campbell the congressman, they're both car nuts uh-huh. and I'm not. And they're always talking about these things and trucks matter so much in this book, mm-hmm. in these books that it's, I just find it amusing. All right, I want to go into Plain Sight because a uh, short segment. In Plain Sight is about the ranch families of the West and what's happened to them. Right. How long was this book a warning? Because I've heard this story over and over again, and now it's fictionalized. Again, that kind of came from my newspaper days in, in Saratoga, Wyoming. There was there was an epic battle going on between two brothers um, on a ranch whose whose mother was you know going to die soon, and uh, whoever got the ranch got everything, and it divided the town and. Um, went on for years of litigation, brutal things, shootings, all sorts of things. And it had to do the third generation. Um, the, it, it's like Bleak House. Explodes. Dickens did it in London. And this, this, this uh, what are their names? Uh, the uh, What's the name? H- Erlen, Hank, and White. What's their last name? Scarlet. Uh, Scarlet family. Scarlet. Yeah. God. And so uh, does this happen over and over again in the West? Yes. And it's amazing how many people I heard from around the country who uh, were either involved in or experienced things like that um, among their fan? You know, it can be a shoe store, a third-generation shoe store, or whatever, some kind of enterprise, where uh, if they haven't laid out a line of succession, it goes kablooey. And divides the entire town with it. We'll be right back, America. C.J. Box is my guest. Uh, in Plain Sight's the book where we're moving on to Free Fire. My favorite of his books, as he probably suspected. Don't go anywhere. Yellowstone could blow at any time. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Out in the country past the city limit sign Where there's a home Welcome back, America. 44 minutes after the hour. I am going to do a dramatic reading of C.J. Box right now from the book Free Fire, which is a novel set in Yellowstone. Dr. Keaton, otherwise known as Doomsayer, is is a character close to my heart. And he says, we are drinking beer right now in the middle of a massive volcanic caldera, Keaton said, leaning across Nate to address Joe directly. Do you know what a caldera is? The center of a dormant volcano. The Yellowstone caldera encompasses most of this so-called park. The edge of the caldera is all around us. We're in a bowl in the mouth of it right now. That's why we have all of our lovely attractions. The geysers, the steam vents, the mud pots, magma from the center of the earth is pushed through the steam into the crust. Keaton screwed up his face with menace. When it goes, when the Yellowstone supervolcano goes, it will instantly kill 3 million people. Every human life and all animal life for 200 miles in every direction. 
Ash will cover the continent, asphyxiate the wildlife, clog all the rivers. There'll be a nuclear winter in New York City, and the climate treaty, and the climate truly will change as the world enters a vicious, sudden ice age. America will be over. Southern Canada, northern Mexico wiped out. The continent will resemble a postmodern wasteland even more than it does now. This time it will be real and not social. It happened every 600,000 years through geologic history. At least four times we can determine. Each super, each super volcanic eruption changes the world. Last time it erupted was 640,000 years ago. Keaton's voice dropped to a whisper. We're 40,000 years. Overdue. <laughs> I rest my case, CJ Box. You yeah. and Bill Bryson taught me more about Yellowstone. I've never set foot in the park. Yes, but this guy is a nut. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you got to worry about this sort of thing. Well, when did you figure out you were going to write this book? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love affair with Yellowstone. It is. It really is. I, I've, I've been there over 120 times in my life. And wow. I've, I love the place. I love the park. Um, and yes, you know, yes, it is a caldera. Um, but you know the likelihood. You know, the like we're in Southern California. I'm scared here. Well, um, we should have been here a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> we could have really said hello. But it really makes it fascinating. And and uh, the thing about that book is that um, there's a lot of features and kind of inside wow. baseball, and all of them are true. With it's just one thing I made up. But all of the the bacteria, the thermophiles, um, the zone of death, all of those I was going to is the zone of death true? Was that actually based upon a real case? Not a real case, but a real theory by a Michigan State law professor um, who... So that stuff is all true. That's all true. Okay, also, bubble queens, pearl divers, pillow punchers, the language. This is one of the things I love about a good read, is that you will enter into a world that exists. We all know subcultures exist. How did you figure this out about Yellowstone and the language of Yellowstone and the language of Zephyr, which is the private concessionaire, et cetera? Well, because I have so many friends involved and because of my many trips there. Um, and I was – see, I'm the kind of guy – I look at a place like Yellowstone and I think, who actually lives here? Who runs this place? How does it work behind the desks? And uh, and I spent a lot of time – I went in and did interviews with both the Park Service and um, concessionaires and said – you know, what's your life really like? Tell me. And I bought a kip buying a beer so they'd finally tell me. You know what I'm surprised about this book? Um, I'm surprised that, that they let you name it other than the Yellowstone Zone of Death. Because there are books like Robert Harris's Pompeii mm-hmm. that everybody reads before they go someplace. And this is the book that everyone should read before they go to Yellowstone, especially kids who want to know about what they're going to be. Mm-hmm. This is a way for them. I mean, there's a little R-rated, gentle R-rated stuff gentle. in there. Gentle. It's not bad. Uh, but has that happened? Is this like stock throughout Yellowstone? It Does is. everyone it know is. this is the? To, you can buy all. You can buy all of my books throughout Yellowstone Park and all the gift shops, which yeah. is great because all the other books are trail books or whatever. And uh, yeah, people. I uh, so many people are introduced to the park and the inside stuff of the park through that book. And are there are there really geyser gazers? Yes. There are. There How many of them are there? There's a couple hundred in the summer, but it goes down to just a few dozen in the winter. But they they actually serve as the park ser- unofficial park service. Ob- uh, you know, they're the ones who observe everything. Is the old faithful report. in that whacked out? It's pretty accurate. Um, all the backroom stuff, uh, the bats alley. They, every once in a while now, they do a free fire tour of old, the Old Faithful Inn and take people through all those back rooms and passages. Oh, I tell you, I, I don't want you to read these books out of order. It really will deny you a lot of pleasure, but you want to get to Free Fire in a hurry. I also want to bring up one character that I just I love for a lot of reasons, Mrs. Hansen, the fourth-grade teacher who's mm-hmm. the environmentalist who's never been in the environment and mm-hmm. who is just all green to go, et cetera. 
was she based on one of your children's teachers, or is she yes. just something? She was. Uh-huh. I thought you might have had some experience. How did that person react, or did they even know? I don't think they even know, and, and that has been my experience, too, is that when I really kind of when I want to get revenge a little bit and I pattern somebody after somebody I find really annoying in a book, they never recognize themselves. All right. Now, the national parks, you quote Wallace Stegner here that um, national parks are the best idea we've ever had. Absolutely American. Absolutely democratic. They reflect us at our best rather than our worst. But they're federal. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are federal acts, uh, C.J. Box. So right. it kind of flies in the face with one of the themes that the federal government screws everything up. Yeah, it 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 does. It, I mean, um, I mean, I, I I'm not a doctrinaire that way. I I, I think sometimes um, park management is sometimes uh, certainly it operates almost against the intent, uh, but the the intent itself is pretty special. You did know? you watch? Did you watch the Ken Burns PBS series on the national parks? I hit? watched the first few, and then what did you think? Um, I, you know, I, I liked them, but I got kind of tired of the endless, um recitations about the reason you know the, of all of the men's encroachment into the wilderness to create this thing they got, they got dull over and over and over okay got it yeah, it's the story the reason they are lovely is the people who enjoy them mm-hmm. their impact on human being not for themselves objectively they're beautiful but they have to be experienced to be beautiful i thought you just did a wonderful job everyone who loves yellowstone must love this book are you thank you did you get any critics from it did, they, did you get nasty you know no i can't i can't think of any did Steamboat Geyser, have you ever seen it go off? No, I just missed it by a day once, though. Things were still wet. Tell people about Steamboat Geyser. It, it, it's, the, it's the biggest geyser in the world, and they have no idea. There's no pattern. Uh, but when it goes off, it can be seen from miles away over the tops of the trees, and it absolutely drenches everything. You see, I just found this book so fascinating because I learned more about Yellowstone. I mean, you could watch a show about it, but you're not going to experience like and this. And would you like, have ever thought that... A body who falls into one of those hot springs, it smells like pork stew. No, I didn't like that. (laughs) Biomining, does it exist? Does biomining exist? It does. It does. I've been to the hot springs. I've seen the instruments. It actually, um, what the the thermophile they found in this one hot spring has done is is make DNA testing go from the two or three weeks it used to be to uh, an instantaneous as it is now, the properties of it. That's amazing. So, you know, every month or so. Wait till the Endangered Species Act comes and describes all those microbes as endangered species. Oh, there you go. Oh, it's coming. Uh, C.J. Box is my guest. We continue on with an exploration of the environmental issues that dominate his wonderful Joe Pickett series. Plus more. Don't go anywhere. 1-800-520-1234. CJ's website, cjbox.net, is linked at hughhewitt.com. 55 minutes after the hour, uh, it's a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. CJ Box, novelist extraordinaire, is my guest in the studio, as he has been uh, for the first two hours. Hour number three, straight ahead. Do not miss it. We're going to get into, you got it, Global Warming, which features very, very prominently in his penultimate book. Well, right now it's his penultimate book, and for the Pittsburgh Steelers fans out there, that means second to last. Uh, below zero in the Joe Pickett series. Uh, uh, C.J. Box, though, Blood Trail is a book about hunting. Right. And you are a hunter. Yes. And I, I must say, in the first five pages, I learned more about hunters and why they hunt than I have ever known before. I'm not a hunter. Uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, do you, do you, how often do you get out still? Uh, you know, I, I hunt birds every year. I, I don't hunt big game all the time anymore, but I grew up doing it and, um, I will hunt big game again. 
And, and Native Americans are in this book. And, right. and how intimate are you with the, the circumstances of reservation life? I'm not even sure. If, are there reservations in Wyoming? Sure. Yeah, the, okay. the, uh, the Wind River Indian Reservation is right in the center. So this is not made up. This is all true. Okay. That, that's true. And, um, you know, again, I wanted to uh, portray, uh, you know, life on the reservation and, and among the people as I saw it as opposed to how people imagine it. And how has and it been to received? Be accurate. Very well. Very well. I haven't, haven't, nobody's gotten after me. Okay. How about the anti-hunting activists? Again, our second major environmentalist is, uh, what's his name? Klamath, uh, what's his silly name? Uh, Klamath Moore. Klamath uh, Like Stewie, he's much more malevolent than Stewie. Yes, he is. And, yes, he and is. The, the nice lady in, uh, in open range. Um, so what about that, the, the anti-hunting activists? You have very little sympathy for this particular character. Does it represent a different class of activists? That's true. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean these are the, the eco-terrorist type activists. Um, and, yeah, and I try to I, – I, I took a lot of the stuff from, uh, that I based him on from websites that I found of, of you know, extreme anti-hunting activists and how many there are out there. And I didn't realize um, how nasty they were. And, and and is that a, a daily kind of story in Wyoming about the, I didn't realize the other thing is, is is the effect of the hunting economy on Wyoming. Oh, it's, it's huge. massive. Yeah, it's huge. You have those statistics about every elk is like worth fourteen thousand yeah. dollars to the state budget or something like that. I love stuff like that. We boil it down to really that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, and it would it hasn't impacted Wyoming as it has some other states. Um, I know that there's been, you know, there's been a lot more controversy in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania with anti-hunt, active anti-hunting activists going out into the field trying to screw up opening day um, than there have been in Wyoming. But I'm, I'm aware of that. And, and when you when you do that, do you go out and, and actually talk to anti-hunting activists or was that all done second person? But more, second person. More That was just studying the websites and studying literature. Right. We come back. Hour number three straight ahead, America. We're going to get into global warming, which is a major feature of Below Zero. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, the impact on on sort of the outlier culture of the federal government's growth, which is very much the theme of his most recent book, Nowhere to Run. And we're going to talk about police work in Blue Heaven. Don't go anywhere. One more hour straight ahead. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Time for a pause now in this edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, hour number three of a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest in studio C.J. Box, he's an animated conversation with Bud the Contractor, who's describing to him his favorite vacation ever in an RV. Bud will not want to get into an RV again if he ever reads Below Zero, uh, because there is a very unfortunate circumstance involving a very big RV in, uh, in Below Zero. My guest is C.J. Box, extraordinarily successful novelist. Some of you will know him quite well and will have read all of his books. Some of you, I hope, go out and immediately get uh, open season and begin what you will thank me for, a wonderful romp through the 10 books in the Joe Pickett series and his other books as well. Uh, C.J. Box, let's let's talk a little bit about 
Below Zero, which is really probably the most political of your books. Probably, yes. Uh, it's got Al Gore in it. It's got carbon offsets in it. It's got uh, blog sites like Planet Stupido. It's got all <laughs> sorts of different things in there. Let's start before we talk about the novel yourself. What is your view of global warming? And who speaks it in these books? Um, well, I mean, my, my personal view, you're yeah. asking me, okay, i got to get, get out from behind the wall. Um, my, my personal view is that it's likely that there could be some global warming, but I doubt that it's, it, it's affected by human activity. This is the Stephen Hayward position, which is the temperature's gone up a little bit. We may but have had a little bit to down. do with it. Yeah. And it's doubtful that we could do anything about it, even if we did have something to do with it. And certainly the United States couldn't do anything by it by itself. Right. Okay. But you also are very sympathetic to people who are passionate about it in this. Uh, mm -hmm. Not the crazy people, but you've got Nate Romanowski, who is our anti-hero hero. hero. Mm -hmm. And he gives a couple of speeches in here about living lightly on the land and having a small footprint. Why do you have him do that? Because I think, um, I, I mean, I admire and I think it's admirable to be thrifty, to, to, to not make a huge impact in, when it's not necessary. But that has more to do with philosophy and... Um, economy than I then uh, you know a, a quasi religious belief uh, and I think you know, just like most stewards of the land um, don't tear it up they take care of it so it's that kind of thing what do you make of carbon offsets I spend a lot of time researching carbon offsets and going to those websites and finding out how much would it cost me to pay for my daughter's wedding and how many guests and what would the check be to alleviate my guilt and I thought I was fascinated by the fact that they existed and that people actually do them. And that's kind of the premise of the book. You also discovered that a lot of the carbon offset makeups end up bringing in non-native plants to sensitive ecosystems around the world like eucalyptus into Thailand. Exactly. That was fascinating. Not many people know that. The, well, you know what? Even the people who are, are, are really debating that issue within the you know carbon offset community don't like that getting out much, that there's some objection to the fact that they may actually be, yeah, introducing species and too many of them to an area that they shouldn't be. What is your, what is your view generally about the planet and where we are as, a, as an ecosystem right now? Wow, that's a question. Um, I think that uh, um, this planet, I mean, nature is, is, is self-healing um, to so many. It changes, but it's self-healing. It's so much bigger than us that for us to think, that we can do one or two, th you know, these things and actually affect it has more to do with how much how much huge self regard we have than what is actually possible. You ever going to put Joe Pickett in Alaska for some crazy reason? I, you know, I, I've thought about it. It, it may happen. I, I kind of have sort of bridled against the idea of making him start to do some globe hopping. But, you know, if there was the right kind of issue that he had to go there for something, that might be fun. Because Wyoming's pretty big. I've only been to Wyoming once. I turned left on the 25 once and went up to Cheyenne and wanted to see that, that, that old hotel where all the cattlemen used to hang out in Cheyenne. Mm -hmm. Went past the big <laughs> statue and all that stuff. And Wyoming's pretty big. You can get lost there. And Colorado's pretty big. But it ain't got nothing on Alaska. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we, we, my wife and I were there a few years ago and really loved it. Are there game wardens? You talked to the Alaska game warden. I haven't talked to them, no. I, I can't even imagine being a game warden in Alaska. That's kind of like losing before you get it. Okay, a couple <laughs> of quick questions. Uh, the Hole in the Wall Canyon. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have a character, again, I'm not giving anything away, who happens to use the Hole in the Wall Canyon. Right. Does it really exist? It does. Okay, tell people it does. about it. I've been there. Um, it's on a... It's on a it, some of it's public now, but most of it's on a private ranch. It's where... 
um, you know, outlaws in the in the old the real West, the 1880s area, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, where they would um, the where they would hole up. It's a perfect geological hiding place. Explain to people why. Because it's um, a huge canyon in the middle, middle of the foothills leading up to the Bighorns, that. Um, that from the areas inside, from the caves inside, you can see anybody coming down um, as they try to approach. But from those trails, you can't see where the caves are. It, so, it, it was fascinating, and you covered it so well. But you also had a, a section, I think it's in this one, some of them I don't have notes on, where you compare the various mountain ranges. Yeah, And you don't the like the book. Sierra Madre too well. Is that in Nowhere to Run? Right. And so you like the bighorns. That's your; those are your mm-hmm. mountains. Which ones don't you like? Which ones are we talking about? Is the universe of ranges? Well, I didn't say I didn't like them. You're, I said Joe Pickett has different viewpoints of different mountain ranges, and he considers the Tetons, the Grand Tetons, kind of like the Euro trash supermodels of mountains. Yes, and, and, and each one has its own their own characteristics. And the Black Hills figure prominently in this book, and people like the hills as opposed to mountains. Right. Particularly Chicago gangsters. Right, and they only get as far as that because it's comfortable. Yeah, actually, there are stories. There's some great stories about Al Capone um, during his hideout days coming out and playing cowboy a little bit on some of the ranches. That must be amusing. Now, Obviously, when the Chicago gangsters show up here, Stenko, mm-hmm. uh, it's a new element. Right. But but why did you – was that a risk as a writer to say, okay, I'm going to introduce – like the carbon traders introduce a foreign species into my ecosystem. I'm going to introduce an outsider into the West. Was that right. a big risk? I don't know if it was a risk, um, but but I always love the juxtaposition. I always love to you know view the West through an outsider's eyes, and that's a way of doing that. And I never had – uh, a traditional gangster um, in any of the books. And I really wanted to go with that because of the stories I'd heard about Al Capone. All right. Now, I'm, I'm going a little psychodrama here. But <laughs> but environmental activist in this book, the crazy one, is the son of, a, of an outlaw looking for love, looking for – is that a generalized view of the hyperactivist in your view, that they're looking for significance or – or to replace something they didn't have. I, I see it as a, as a supplement or a replacement for you know religious extreme religious fervor, and, and they they choose to make you know um, environmentalism their religion, and therefore anything they do is justified. At the same time, there's a very poignant scene among some young trust babies getting married, uh, where oh. they're where they're having a conversation oh, a about what their moms. Don't you know my mom runs the Green Day in San Diego or something like that? Sort of like the Tony environmental gets slapped around in here, too. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. They, that's uh, What this is, is a, I mean, not giving too much away, is that um, it's a quest uh, by this gangster before he dies. He's going to die soon to pay down his uh, carbon footprint um, as quickly as possible. And that involves some horrible crimes. And it's all done to um, try to reconcile with his son. You gave away a lot more than I was going to give away. Well, that's back at jacket flaps. That is, oh, see, that's, that, don't you hate to write jacket flaps for I don't. mysteries? I don't. Um, I don't do the writing of it. And you don't. And, but and no, and sometimes I do really have problems with it when they, when it's give, too much is given away. It's like a movie. I don't want to know anything about a movie till I sit down, and I'm conducting this in such a way that hopefully it will confuse everybody <laughs> about every novel, but but tease them a lot. All right, I got to go to page two twenty two here because it's Nate and. Uh, I was thinking of myself because I covered the bird flu a lot. You're very, very hard on people who covered the bird flu a lot. Here. I was thinking to myself, oh, gosh, C.J. Box doesn't like people who covered the bird flu. Um, I try to live low impact, Nate explained. 
I'm concerned about the environment of my planet. The whole world is in a tizzy about global warming, but I never take these crises for face value. If I did, I'd never get any sleep. Remember bird flu, swine flu, and mad cow disease? We're all going to die from those, if you recall. What's bird flu, Sheridan asked? Exactly my point. Sheridan doesn't even know what it was supposed to be, a big-time pandemic, and that no one would be safe. One great crisis steps forward and replaces the last one. We don't give it a second thought. Don't forget the millennium bug. Ha! And I distinctly remember when I was growing up, we were headed for a new ice age. Remember that? I remember reading about it in grade school. People like to think they're doomed. It brings some kind of black <laughs> comfort, I guess. Anyway, since I've got the satellite internet dish and plenty of time on my hands, I've been doing lots of research on climate change. I'm not sure what I believe yet. There's no doubt there's an increase in temperature. Not much, but definitely real. The rub is whether it's our fault or a natural cycle. There's some pretty convincing arguments on both sides. The problem is the issue has moved from science into religion with true believers on both sides. There isn't even a debate anymore. Both sides believe what they believe and their positions have hardened. That's prior to Climate Gate. Yeah. It, that was prior to But I thought you sum up my view completely <laughs> on, on everything about this sort of stuff. But what do you do then in that situation as a novelist moving forward when people are reading your book for information? Uh, I, I disagree with you about the bird flu. We will get a pandemic like the Spanish flu of 1918. We will because it just is going to recur. I'm with Bush on this sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> what do you do then if science is discredited and – and no one believes anything anymore. Boy, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I guess all you do is, is you know, another great institution or belief is you can't believe it anymore. Um, hopefully that will make them clean up their act. I, other than that, I'm not sure what to say. Do you believe in the wind power that's now decorating Wyoming with windmills? That is the subject of the next book. I've been researching that. Oh, interesting. Stumbled onto something. I'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. My guest is CJ Box. CJBox.net is linked at HughHewitt.com. More coming up. Stay tuned. How come running with me, making that 10 in the broad daylight? And every night is a Saturday night. And everything's right. The summer coming. I'm the first. 22 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Uh, getting into the life of CJ Box, novelist extraordinaire. Uh, CJ's. Key character is Joe Pickett, uh, although he has other books, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. Uh, my friend, uh, Bud the Contractor, just uh, left. He's going to go down by open season. I've got all the other ones. I gave open season to a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. It's gone as a result. Uh, <laughs> CJ, are you a sports fan? Yes, I they're, am. The Wyoming Cowboys are in this book occasionally. Yes, they are. They, they don't do that well. But they break your heart, follow. don't they? Yes, they I do. saw the University of Colorado uh, Buffaloes crush them last year. I was listening, and I, I knew that you were at that game, and I thought, oh. Yeah, so, so uh, is that like a a fetish among all Wyoming people, they try and root for the Cowboys. We only have one university, oh, that's so that, that's our that's our team. Okay, uh, nowhere to run uh, is the most recent CJ Box uh, book, and it's very different. I mean, I think it's completely different than the ones before that. Am I right in this? No, you you, you, know, you are right. Yeah, uh, and we start with the Grimm brothers. I'm going to let you tell people what they need to know, but they're introduced early in the book, so I don't mind giving them a little hint about them. Right, Joe Pickett is is investigating some weird things going on in the Sierra Madre. Um, and do, do doing a five-day horse trek over the top of the mountains. And on the top, he sees a lone fisherman on a lake. And uh, he goes down to investigate, and the guy is very strange-looking, very aggressive, belligerent back, claims he has a fishing license, and uh, offers to take Joe to his camp to show it to him. Joe follows, and uh, he re- Joe realizes that there are two of these guys, two brothers, identical twins, dressed alike, both in their own world, both uh, aggressive and belligerent, and he knows just simply by the vibe of the place that they're going to be coming after him. There are also other characters in this book that reflect 
parental discord mm-hmm. quite a lot. And and uh, you also have a little meditation in here, and I've got a lot of friends who are triathletes and marathon runners. you got a little meditation on the people who do that kind of thing as well. What, what's the what's the C.J. Box or the Joe Pickett view on ultra-athletes? You know, I, I don't really have one. I mean, And don't assume that if, if Joe Pickett has a thought about something that it's mine necessarily. But in this case, it's just about um, the, it's the parents of – of these uh, uh, runners who feel that they're so self-absorbed with it, with their running that um, they're disconnected. Yeah. And there's also a mad archer yeah. and it sort of stands. There's a recurring theme in all the Joe Pickett books about people who abuse the fish and game laws. You're not big fans of these people. No, you're, I'm you're, not. you're always down on them. And the mad archer is always shooting things out of season for cruelty. Mm-hmm. What percentage of, of, of Hunters are this sort of cruel person. It's very, very small. It, right? I think it's extremely small. It's very unusual, and and they're they're not hunters. They're they're just you know they're sadists. gangsters. Yeah, they're sadists. And there's a scene here where rough justice is going to be delivered. Mm-hmm. Is that generally what the West views about people who abuse the fish and game laws? Yes. Um, yeah. In fact, you know they they certainly. I mean, because it's it's somebody who's affecting their resource. Uh. You know, so it's it's beyond some criminality. You also talk about most people turn themselves in. It's a little aside in one of the books. I can't remember which one. That most fish and game violators turn themselves in. Yeah, they do. Now explain yeah, they that do. because because most most fishermen and hunters are ethical people, and um, you know when they when they do something wrong, sometimes they if a hunter is shooting at one animal and hits the wrong species, um, will go turn himself in and say I, I did it, I screwed up, give me my fine. One of the cultures discussed in Nowhere to Hide is the objectivist culture. And you've yeah. obviously read your Ayn Rand. In college, yes. Well, tell people about why you decided to write about it. Do you think this is driving a lot of this, this separatist movement, a lot of this kind of outlier movement right well, now? Well, yes. I and, agree. And like I said, I, I finished this book a year ago. But um, have you ever heard in the last 20, 30 years as much about Ayn Rand as now? No. And, no. and suddenly people are, are reading those books for the first time, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, so yeah, I think you know, that's something to latch onto um, as kind of I think a way to focus some of the frustration. Can't people lose themselves in the Mountain West? I mean, it. it I you keep in your books talking about how vast these areas mm-hmm. are and how a lot of the game people, the, the wardens, et cetera, have to go out on a horse. You can't get mm-hmm. anywhere unless you're out on a horse. Is it? Can people actually lose themselves well, and go to, off the grid? To answer this question, this book Nowhere to Run is based on a real incident. Oh, they it is. Really, are those those brothers, the twins, in the middle of the Wind Rivers, the game warden that, that serves as my technical consultant was the one who found them, and they've never yet, they haven't been spotted again since. Wow. When did that come out? Three years ago. Three years ago. Um, he's, he's, he's even got some blurry photos of them at, in, in the camp. They're like Sasquatch, huh? A little bit, yeah. Well, now, now your technical advisor... They must all have like a million stories, right? They do. And so yeah. is that where you get most of your creative material from? No, this is the only one I've actually based on a real game warden okay. incident. All the others are, you know, based on the issue. There is also a, a, an incident here of a wounded person surviving, uh, which is very riveting. How did you figure that stuff out? Is that, are, are we talking about the Hugh Glass story? No, well, that, that story's in there, but, but your your character who is wounded thinks about Hugh Glass to yes. power them forward. Tell people about Hugh Glass. Oh, well, yeah, That's a, a true story? That is a true wow. story, yes. He was one of the original mountain men. He was with Jim Bridger on an expedition and um, was attacked by a grizzly bear, left for dead, absolutely mauled. And uh, But it was in the middle of Indian country, so Jim Bridger, the f- famous mountain man, um, 
and his buddies stayed with this guy waiting for him to die for three days, figured we can't stay any longer. The Indians will find us. We'll be dead. They left him. And then the guy came out of his coma and his, and for months traveled on his own till he could walk again solely to find Jim Bridger to kill him. And he never did. He didn't kill but Jim he, But Bridger. he did survive. That is remarkable. It's an amazing story. It's, it's a story that it, it's, you know, greater than any fiction. It, uh, how much of the Old West do you know, C.J. Box? I think quite a bit, and it's just sort of in the genes. It's not like I don't read a lot of Westerns, but I have read a lot of history. And when, that, when, that, when did that uh, a fixation or obsession or hobby begin? Uh, as soon you? as I could read. Oh, you really? Know, I, I, you know, be, and because I think simply because, you know, Wyoming is the West, you read Western stuff. And did you watch Deadwood on HBO? I did. I did. And? And I, I got into it, but I got tired towards the end of it. Um, I, I felt like I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Okay. Robert Duvall did not like it. He said that the men of the West that, did not. I, I heard that interview. Yeah. Didn't, didn't talk that way. Didn't exist that way. I agree with him. Uh Based on based on reading um, journals and historical westerns, um, that that I I've certainly certainly cursed, but they didn't curse in a Shakespearean way. Well, it's true. <laughs> but was it that violent? Uh, Deadwood was. There's also in your book, occasional character a crystal meth user, mm-hmm. a, a, an absolute drunk. Um, are these people common? More common in the in the Mountain West than you'll find them elsewhere. Well, I mean, in the rural er, rural America, is crystal meth. It doesn't have to be just the Mountain West. I mean, it's everywhere. Have you noticed a change in in Wyoming in the years that you've been alive in terms of the the kind of people who are casualties of the new culture? Yes. And yeah. how do you find? Where do you see them? Um, well, I mean, they're everywhere. And plus, if you talk to law enforcement, that's that's where the the, the a huge amount of hours of the day are spent with those types. And in terms of the influx of the people who are retiring, the mm-hmm. uh, in fact, we'll come to this in the next segment. We talk about Blue Heaven. Do they come up there, and are they surprised by what they're not leaving behind? Oh, that's a good way to put it. Um, I think so. I, I mean, they, you know, a lot of people don't come to the Mountain West because of the winters. But those who can get through the winters tend to really stick and seem to really enjoy it, and they make the place better. Most of your books are not about the winter. Winter no. kill is. Winter kill but, is. Yeah, winter yeah. kill is. We'll be right back. CJ Box is my guest. We're going to veer off Joe Pickett for a moment now. We'll come right back. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Life's like a road that you travel on. There's one day here and the next day gone. Sometimes you've been... 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with CJ Box. Half hour left in our long, day-long conversation about his life and work as a writer. He's been at it for so many years. His books are all linked to HughHewitt.com via CJBox.net. Start with open season. Read them in order. You know, the media is a, another theme in your books, uh, CJ. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in uh, uh, Nowhere to Run, you've got Farkas. And, by the way, <laughs> named after, I'm sure, a character in the Christmas story. Farkas <laughs> is the guy who gets beat up. And he's kind of a nebbish in this book as well. But as, he, as, as, as his role unfolds, he sees the opportunity to score with the media. Mm-hmm. And so he, he checks his hair, he checks himself, and he, he plans on getting a contract. He becomes, you know, he wants to be an authority on this and that. So he rides off. There is a real current in the Joe Pickett novels of contempt for modern media. <laughs> you know, there is, I guess. I, I don't think about it that much, but I certainly do watch cable news. Um, you listen to talk radio. I, I absolutely do. I, I'm a member of the universe. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but uh, no, no, just obviously the, you know, it, it's not new, but I mean, anybody who's following anything that, you know, if there's, you know, 
a blonde on an island, we're going to hear about it twenty four seven for the next several weeks, and yeah. and that drives me crazy. And yes, I, I do have sometimes have a very cynical view, and but I, you know I don't try to pound anybody over the head with it. No, but it, it's very uh, knowing about how the rules are and how people rise through media. Is that based upon your time as a reporter? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah, and I I have you know friends in the media. Does anyone in the, in the media read your books? I mean, any of the New York people? They normally don't read these books. I don't know of any in the New York. There, there have been a few, though. I've been surprised by a few that have, that have contacted me or had their people contact me and say they really enjoyed it and would like the new book. I, I, I think it'd be fascinating to put you on whenever these things happen. This brings me to Blue Heaven because the media is big in Blue Heaven. Yes. Uh, I'm going to let you set it up to tell people what Blue Heaven is and why. This is so different from the Joe Pickett novels. It's the one I haven't finished. As I said earlier in the program, if you're just tuning in, I'm about six hours through the 10-hour listen. Most of the other, I've read all the other books, but this one I'm listening to. Yeah, this was uh, this actually came about. Uh, uh, I was on a book tour in L.A. about I think five years ago, and a little store where uh, uh, LAPD guys would come in and help with the book signing. Actually, and and one of them found out I was from Wyoming, and he said, "Oh, you're from that Blue Heaven country. A bunch of my buddies have retired there." I'd never heard the phrase. I didn't think it was Wyoming, and it, when I investigated it further, it was um, he meant the Panhandle, extreme North Idaho. Extreme North Idaho, and uh, thirty miles from Canada, right? Yeah. And and that uh, up to over a thousand um, ex LAPD at that point had moved up there and retired. And I found that fast, you know, big city cops in a very rural area. I thought there's a story there, so I do. I went up and did some interviews and uh, talked to some of the, the retired retired cops and the locals, and the story came from there. Now, there's there's some aspects of the story. For example, it involves Arcadia Racetrack. Yeah. And and uh, uh, the what's the name of the horse? Or Santa Anita. Is, is, yeah. it, is it Santa Anita? Mm-hmm. In Arcadia. Right. And uh, the famous horse about whom the sea book. Biscuit. Sea Biscuit. And so, you know, you, you've got one character walking around the track, going to the jockey club. And mm-hmm. so, did you go there? Oh, yes. I don't, I don't want to tell this for a long, long I went out to see the park because I, I was here and I just wanted to see what it looked like. And it was not a race day and it's probably going to get me in trouble. But I walked up to a fence that was open. And I went inside. Oh, just I'd like walk, the Ataro. Okay. Exactly. I walked through the, the restaurants, through the paddocks. I walked through everything, never saw anybody, took notes the whole time, walked out, and had the entire experience. And that became the chapter. Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. So that's what you do. Because I was wondering how you got that sort of detail. You actually go to the place and wander through it. In this case, yeah. I had contacted them, said, I'm a writer. I'd love to come tour the park. They never responded. So I went there anyway and found a gate open. Now, since the book came out, have you heard from any of the stewards or the people there about, about it? By the way, was that a real incident? No. Okay, I, mean, I was wondering. I haven't had a chance to look it up yet because I'm listening to it. So you made up the crime about which this, and, and how did you figure out all the details like on money laundering and money tracing and banking and all that I stuff? I just started thinking how hard it is these days to have a, to get a bundle of cash. There's, there's very few places where there's a lot of cash. Uh, and there would be at a racetrack. And so you needed, so you needed that to power it forward. Mm-hmm. And what about you've, you've got, for the first time, um, Latino characters, Hispanic mm-hmm. characters, because Wyoming's not exactly culturally diverse. Oh, and this when, is Idaho, Idaho. This is even less so. <laughs> is it less so than Wyoming? <laughs> I think so. So how did, you, how did you go about this? Because the pronunciation made me laugh, because I, pronunciate, I, I pronounce almost every name wrong, much less people of, of ethnic variety. I'd get them all wrong. How did you go about learning this subculture? You know, I, I, I don't know if I'd learned that much about it other than there's a friend and a fellow author um, named Viatoro 
in L.A., and I would go to his house on the book tours, and, and he's, he's just in a documentary, and I know him and like him, and he's got the Salvadoran connection, so I kind of used his story. Oh, interesting. 44 minutes coming up after the hour, America. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Continue my conversation with C.J. Box. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. CJBox.net. Linked at HughHewitt.com. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I've spent the day with C.J. Box. This segment... And the next still to go, and we're playing a little Louis Armstrong. Why are we playing Louis Armstrong, C.J. Box? Because we've been listening to it in the car as we drive around L.A., that's why. And how long and have you had an stuff. affinity for Louis Armstrong? I've always kind of liked him, but uh, the guy I'm with, Ken Wilson, uh, is an aficionado, so he's been, you know, I'd rather listen to Louis Armstrong than Ken. Ken is my, that's true. <laughs> Ken is my connection for authors on the West Coast. All right, going back to Blue Heaven, um, it's another double-breasted view of law enforcement. You've mm-hmm. got good cops and bad cops, and you've got heroics and, and really awful. Do you think there are people that, that are that bad? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, not Keeley bad. Keeley's a psychopath right. from, from early on in the novel series, and that's a different kind of, and I know mm-hmm. they're psychopaths, and, but I mean, intentionally, maliciously cold, that bad. Well, yes, there are. And, and you know, especially, I mean, when you, when you hear and read of true crime stories so many times, they're so much worse than anything I could ever imagine. So I think... Um, I think the characters are, you know, fairly accurate. And, and in Blue Heaven, I just figured if there's a thousand ex-retired cops, there's probably three of them that aren't very good, you know. And so I'm not even suggesting they're all like that, or even, you know, even any significant number. Just this one thing. All right, two other subcultures here. I mentioned earlier in the show for people coming in the old ranchers of the West, and you got Jess Rollins, who's an old rancher. How many of these guys are there left? Not in that part of the country. Not many. I mean, there's only. In, there, there is only one working ranch remaining in that part of North Idaho, and uh, I went and, and talked to the people who, who operated it, and they were telling me how tough it was. And so where are we going to get our cows from? Oh, where, where's pl- the hamburger going to go? Is it all going to be imported? No, there, no, there's plenty of land in, in Wyoming and Montana. It's just in the resort areas is where there's no longer real agriculture. Uh, and in terms of the, um, the rodeoing. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a culture of rodeoing, and, and my friend Twiggs is an old rodeoer, and I went over to the Las Vegas thing with Cinch Jeans and learned Which a lot was about one rodeo. a couple of the funniest hours I have ever heard. Well, that, Thank you for that. That brown cow, <laughs> black cow thing got me in a little trouble, but we'll, we won't well on that. Um, I can't imagine why. I can't, did you rodeo? No, no. Did you have friends who rodeo? Yes. Yeah, and, I grew up with a lot of them. And, and, and I and I was also on the on the board of directors for Cheyenne Frontier Days Rodeo for six years. Oh, okay. And you've got cinch jeans in one of your books as well. So I'm sure my friends and you're wearing cinch as we speak here. Yeah, that, that's going to make Ron and those guys. As is Dwayne. I guess it's cinch day here at the Hugh Hewitt. That's the real deal in the rodeo. It, it is, but mm-hmm. in terms of that culture, isn't that dying? Actually, no. Um, there's probably a lot more rodeo cowboys than there are working ranch Well, that's cowboys. what I mean. Uh, but I mean that culture of the ranches. Isn't that going away? The rodeo is big. Professional yeah. bull riding, all that stuff is huge. But but that... Yeah, I, I think if you probably look at actual numbers, it's certainly smaller. But uh, the, the subculture of rodeos is, is growing. Okay. Now, I want to close by asking you the hardest question of all. Oh. Which is your favorite of the Joe Pickett novels? Oh, God. And don't do to me what these other authors always do, which I love them all. I do love them all. I know it's a like children, but there's always a favorite child in big families. It would be either, I can't say one, but it would be either open season since that introduced it all. And I'm forever grateful that, that, it, that the foundation was, was set or probably free fire. 
which because I love Yellowstone so much, and it's the only one I felt that I, ha- I left so much on the cutting room floor that I wanted to put in about Yellowstone. Is there are there other national park novels out there? Is there a Yosemite novel out there? Is is that on your list of ideas? Probably not. Um, I, I am going to. I just finished a standalone novel. It'll be out next year. That will be another. Will be set partially in Yellowstone. Oh, okay. What's on the, What's on the list of the to do novels? Oh, um, I do want to do a book sometime that include that that is actually about rodeo, a Joe Pickett novel. I've had it figured out for years. I just have to wait till his girls get old enough. So I want to get into the subculture of rodeo, the real one. You've had a barrel riding woman before. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Alicia. Was it Alicia, the the Native American? Yeah, I think she. Yeah, she was for a while. She was a barrel rider, and so I learned a little bit about that. So that's interesting. So the culture of, of rodeo. What else? Oh, uh, the wind, wind energy development. And then the current book I'm working on, the uh, Joe Pickett book that'll be out next year, is about that. That's the, sub, that's the theme. How anyway. much time do you spend on the road vis-a-vis at home writing? Um, I'm on the road usually about a month a year uh, with book tours and so on. But then it you know, really depends on the subject. Some things I don't need to go there. Um, but others I do. So it just, just totally depends on the book and the subject. And why do these book tours? I've talked to a lot of authors. They used to matter a great deal. Mm-hmm. Why are you still doing them? I still think they do because books, unlike so many other things, are really sold um, one at a time. You know, a reader telling another reader, I met this guy, I gal, um, I, I, nice guy, try this book out. It really, it's a slow build like that. There's always exceptions, but in general, I find them, um, plus I, I like the opportunity to meet with readers. Who is I your really average do. reader? You know, with me, it's like 50-50 men and women, which is really interesting. That's because Mary genre. Beth is a big feature here, and I'll bet you that the, the spouses of law enforcement love this. I, I hear that a lot. Do you? Yes. Um you know, so I think there's more men readers than, than women uh, of these kind of series. Um, uh, usually uh, an awful lot of retired people, a lot of, a lot of men who don't read fiction while they, they have their careers suddenly turn into voracious readers once they're retired. Huh. And, you know, that uh, Eisenhower always used to read novels of the West when he was at war. Because it, it allowed him to go away. I've never been a Louis L'Amour. How, do you read Louis L'Amour all these Not guys? Not that much, actually. I've never, I've never cared about those kind of things. I always thought it was one plot over and over and over again. It is. Is there anyone else who's doing anything like Joe Pickett? Surprisingly, there's now a couple more game warden books out there. One set in Texas, one set in Maine. I've kinda, I think I've sort of helped generate a little subgenre. Um, but there, there, I, and there, there's certainly more outdoor kind of adventure books than there were, but I mean, I wasn't the first. Tony Hillerman was, who really took a, a rural location and made it, um, it set a series there. And I think it, with this, he really was. The Do you know guy Tony? Charted the pathway. Never met him, unfortunately. He gave me the million dollar quote on the first book that said, "You know, buy this, buy two copies of this book and save one. That's going to be worth a mint." How did how did that happen? Um, my editor, I think, sent him a galley of it. And and he always talked up my books, and I, I I went to two places once where he was supposed to be there to meet him, and he was sick, and he wasn't there, so I never got a chance to actually. Are you surprised him. by the generosity of writers? I am, yeah, and and some of the the best, most popular, uh, especially in this genre, are also the most generous. Yeah, when I talk to these people off air or in studio, there's also this sort of subculture of writers who mm-hmm. know each other, well, live the life together. Yeah, it's great. Uh, the, Last segment coming up. What is going to be the legacy of C.J. Box? We'll figure it out. We come back, America. Don't go anywhere. 
uh, except stay here for the last segment of a very special show. CJBox.net, start with open season, then read on. I'll be right back. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, America. I want to thank Dwayne and Adam. Thank you, Neil. I want to thank Ken for driving CJ to the studio and CJ Box for coming in and sitting down this long. I hope you've enjoyed this, America, as much as I have. CJBox.net for all of the books. You can go to Wikipedia if you want to get them in the right order. Start with open season, then work your way forward. Uh, CJ, first of all, are you ever going to run for office? No. You're sure? 100%? 100% sure. The writer turned governor of Wyoming is not in the future? No, it's not. Absolutely not. Not now, not ever, never. This is a uh, McCarthy-like, uh, not McCarthy, uh, MacArthur-like statement. Yes. All right. I don't think it was MacArthur. Who did that? Sherman. Yes. It was Sherman-like statement. All right. Now, having said that, how long do you expect to do this? Are you going to go like um, Calvin and Hobbes, the, the artist who said, <laughs> after a while, I'm done? No. No, no, I, I, I love it. it I've, uh, I mean, all my, all my life, I wanted to be a novelist. It took 40 years to get there. Now I just sort of feel unleashed. Um, I want to keep, I, I think I'm getting better as a writer. Um, it's getting a little easier because I understand the process. Uh, they've been successful, which is nice. It's, everyone has outsold the previous one. Um, the new one, Nowhere to Run, is now, you know, got on the New York Times list at number 17, which is my highest number. So that's good. And as things succeed, I, I like it more. What do you want your legacy? What do you want people to say about C.J. Box as a writer? You know, I, I that's I've never thought about it like that. But I want them to someday say that I got it right about what I wrote about, you know, at this particular time in this country, in this place, that so, if you want to know what it was like, maybe read this series. So do you want to be read? 50 years from now, 100 oh, years from it. now? I'd and, love it. And do you it. think that they can do that as windows into a period of time? I I don't know. Um, it's, you know, some sometimes that works with some writers, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, Raymond Chandler, 30s Los Angeles, nobody has ever done that better. Um, and that's a window in. Hopefully this will be a window into the Mountain West. And do you, do you think you're standing at a particular pivot time in the Mountain West? I don't know. Things seem to have really taken off the last year or so for some reason. I mean, in terms of losing the ranches, losing that life, losing that, oh, that independence, that, like the and moving. Point. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think we're kind of have tipped into <laughs> into a, a whole different. Um, I mean, the, I think the legacy ranches, the family ranches, um, a lot of just the, the whole frontier kind of of attitude is probably on the downside. Will you ever live anywhere else? No. You're sure of that? I'm sure of that. No, I love it. I mean, I mean I, I'm comfortable there. I travel a lot, but I, I always want to go home. Is there any place in the world that is similar? Oh, you know, I think New Zealand is a little bit because of the trout fishing and some of that, some of the um, the country and some places in South America. Too. Have you have you traveled around the world? I have because uh, my wife and I have a company that's involved in tourism promotions. Oh, what so is I've it? Been all over. It's called Rocky Mountain International. Well, Rocky Mountain International, we'll check it out. We're out of time, CJ. Thank you so much for spending the this time with me. This has been so cool. Thank uh, you well, very much. It's been my my pleasure. America, thank you. I'll be back next week. Remember, cjbox.net for all of the books. And you can start with open season. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. 
Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.